Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church's The Upper Room. Our podcast addresses the Christian's role in today's culture. We hope you enjoy it and find it informative. To help support our ministry, please consider becoming a subscriber and financial contributor. Links to donate are on our website at bfcforyou.org. Now let's get going. Hi, I'm Bob Wren, Associate Pastor here at Bible Fellowship Church, and this will be a very special edition of The Upper Room. But before we get started with that, I'd like to remind you that this is a podcast and that we could use your help getting it out into the podcasting world. So if you could leave us a review, preferably a good one, with whatever platform that you listen to us on and try to get the algorithms right so that we get heard by more and more people. So be greatly appreciated. So with that said, we'll get started tonight. We are going to be interviewing um, a few of the ladies from Bible Fellowship Church, and I'm going to have them go around and introduce themselves in just a second. But they've had a ladies' Bible study over the past couple of months that I think it ran either six or eight weeks. Six weeks it is. And It was a Bible study on a book by Bob Wilkins entitled Confident in Christ. What was the subtitle, ladies? Living by Faith Really Works. So tonight with me is Inga Trest. Say hello, Inga. Hello. We have Robin Nichols. Robin? We have Karen. I'm sorry, Carol. Oh, my gosh. Christmas Carol Mailer. Hey, Carol. And we have Pam Jarnigan. Say hi. Hi. Okay, ladies. Just an initial question. How did you choose this book as a basis for your study? I was invited by Inga Tress to attend the prayer meeting that they were having, and then they decided they needed to have a Bible study because um, a couple of the ladies were saying they would open their Bible but not know where to start and not know how it all fit together. And so in my research, I was looking for uh, ladies' Bible studies that would be a weekly sort of a thing, and found a couple of things, one on forgiveness, one on Elijah. But then somehow, Inga and I found ourselves at a table with Bob, Wren, and we broached the idea, what would you do? He said, without hesitation, Confident in Christ. And so it's a book that I had read before and loved, and I just resonated with that. So, and Inga did too. So that's what we went with. Okay. What was the book about, roughly? Just a, just a thumbnail sketch in two or three lines. What's, what's the topic of the book? That believing in Jesus is all you need to be saved. Okay. That's all you need. And that we can be secure in our salvation. And you can be secure in your salvation. So there's no um, turning? No. Um, There's no confessing? No. Oh, okay. Good, good. In the book, which I read, there was an introduction to it. And Bob briefly gave, you know, a few pages on where he had come to and how he had come to faith in Christ. Do you think that was a helpful thing going into this book? Very much so. To hear how hard he tried as a young person in a a Christian athletics group that was very legalistic, how hard he tried, and I think his his parents finally took him out of this, and he just felt defeated all, all the time, and he came to know the Lord in college. And he described the difference between how he came to know the Lord and how he struggled with the idea that he could lose his salvation and go to hell with any sin that he might commit. Now, there was a phrase he used uh, in that introduction. Do you recall what it was? It, it, it encapsulates exactly what you're talking about. He called it sinless perfection was necessary oh, yes. for the salvation, mm. which he thought he thought that's what salvation required of him, is sinless perfection. And 
Anybody here had that thought at some point in your um, walk with Christ? Absolutely. Yeah, sinless perfection. I think we could all say that you know, we, we thought that what was required was sinless perfection. But if that's the case, then what's the problem with that sinless perfection? What do we keep running up against as believers? Sin. Sin, <laughs> right. Can, can we live sinlessly in, in this age, in this life? No, we can't, can we? And so that, that creates a problem then moving forward. If, if, in fact, we cannot have a sinless life, then how can we ever know that we're saved? And that's what this book addresses. Quite frankly, I grew up and thinking exactly how Bob Wilkins thought that what was required was sinless perfection. And that was the, that was the goal I was shooting for. Is there going to be a time when, in fact, there will be sinless perfection in our lives? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, when's that going to be? When we're delivered from this body of death. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Right, right. All right. Well, let's start with chapter one. The ladies have prepared to speak on each chapter. They did the first six chapters. And so Inga Trest is going to tell us a little bit about chapter one, but I'll prompt her with a, a question. If you could tell us about faith and saving faith and false faith, if you could talk about each one of those aspects of faith compare, contrast a little bit, and lead us on. Take it away, Inga. All right. Chapter one was saving faith and focus. And I tried to just make it simple, the first few chapters, and divide it up between faith, saving faith, and false faith. And faith in itself is the conviction that something is true. But when we get to saving faith, which is really, I think, what, what we try to focus on for this whole book, we realize that saving faith must include Jesus Christ as the object of our faith and belief in his promise that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. And we covered many verses and we memorized some verses, but I picked out just a couple to share here. John six forty seven. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John three sixteen and 17, which most of us are familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And there's over a hundred verses in the Bible that say the sole condition for everlasting life is believing in him, meaning Jesus Christ. And so we contrasted the saving faith with the false faith, which so many religions and even cults and you know, they really go off on these tangents. And false faith, in a nutshell, is anything that is added to or different from what the Bible clearly states to be the saving faith. Works of any kind, believing in anything other than Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection to save. And I picked Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to kind of sum this up. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. I uh, reread through that first chapter um, today, and I wrote something on the bottom of this page here, and I'll just read that. Problem from the get-go was adding to what God had said. Mm. You know, if you remember back into the Garden of Eden, you know, and the serpent comes up to Eve, and he said, "Has did God say, uh, really say that you should not eat of the, the fruit of a tree of knowledge of, of good and evil? And Eve said, he did say that you should not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil or even touch it. And at that point, she was adding something to what God had said. And likewise, if you think about it, what's going on in Christianity today, basically a false gospel being taught, is that we are adding as men something to what God has said. Jesus, as God as man, has said that it's belief that he has made us savable again by all the things that he has done, and that he is, in fact, the guarantor of eternal life. And then when we start adding anything else onto that, we're creating something other than the good news, the gospel, other than what God has said. You're right. And even in the book of Revelation, where it says anything that could be added or taken away, both of those things are, are just as bad as the other. Correct, correct. Well, I got a quick question for you. He also covered this topic in it, but it's also something that I remember as um, as a believer throughout my life. All right, 
So this is how people get saved after Jesus has come to the earth. All right. Well, what about all these people that were in, you know, in the Bible that came before Christ? And so they didn't have an opportunity to believe in Christ as their Savior, or apparently not. How are Old Testament saints saved? Well, that's true because we always, we don't see Jesus mentioned really in the Old Testament in the way that we do in the New Testament. And so we, what we see mostly is do's and don'ts and a lot of laws. And so we're thinking that they had to do that. And I think that's where most of us start in our Christian walk. We think we have to be good enough, and, and you know that's, that's what it's about, but it really isn't. It's about what Jesus did, not what we can do, because in and of ourselves, we can't do anything. So when we go, how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus came? And again, I tried to stick with Scripture. So uh, Romans 4.3 and also Galatians 3.6 says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 4.5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So Abraham is the prototype, an example of what it means to live by faith. And so Abraham is the go-to that even cults or other religions, most of them know Abraham, right? And so Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would, which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Also, we see where Abraham's faith was tested and proven in Genesis 22 with the offering of Isaac. Again, about his faith in what God had promised. And so everywhere you look, it's faith. It's still faith. It's faith in what God has said. We believe that God is, say, he's faithful. He's to do that, which... He does not change. He doesn't. He has not changed throughout any of this. In fact, it has always been salvation by grace through faith from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God will remain faithful God is, I believe the word, immutable. Yes. Is that the word? That mm-hmm. means he's unchangeable. God does not change. That does not mean that he does not deal with mankind in different ways in the different times. Throughout the Bible, we have a picture of God giving man a test, giving man something to do, and then ultimately man always fails the test, and then there's judgment. And so it's always been salvation by grace through faith. And so that, that's, that's the important thing to know about Old Testament saints. They were always saved by grace through faith. And they were all sinful human beings, just as we are. Just as sturdy and sinful as I am. Would anybody else like to add anything to chapter one? No, I think Inga did a great job. <laughs> okay. Oh, let's see. Chapter two, who was up for chapter two? I had that one. Oh, Pam. All right. This one had a catchy title. Yeah. Chapter two was called Nick at Night. The original. The original <laughs> Nick at Night. Um, the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Right. How would you like me to approach this questioning? Or would you just like to roll with that? I'll roll. Okay, Pam's going to roll um, with <laughs> chapter two, Nick at Night. You go, girl. Oh, no, I want you to ask me questions. Oh, okay. All right, well, let me throw this out there. In this encounter, we have one of the most famous Bible verses that almost probably anybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, which is Jesus Christ, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why is that difficult for those who believe that good works are necessary to have an everlasting life? I think mainly because it's just too simple. We're conditioned to believe that there has to be something more, and a lot of times that comes because of the way we're brought up, either in the church or a certain denomination. I know I grew up a Presbyterian, and there wasn't, it wasn't stated that you had to have good works to be saved, but that was proof of your salvation. So it caused me to really have doubts about my salvation when there were times in my life when I would go astray and I thought, how can I still be saved if I'm not producing fruit or just outright sinning, especially for long periods of time. And I think, too, today, 
we get that message a lot in the media, even among the unchurched or people of other faiths, you, that you know you can earn your way to heaven. It's, it's cute a lot of times the way they picture it and that kind of thing. But it, to me, there's kind of almost not an allegory, but a comparison to Santa Claus. It's like you're either on the nice list or on the naughty, naughty list, list. Yeah. and if you're on that naughty list, you're going to get punished, and you can fall off of the nice list really easily. Yeah, you're never more than a breath or two away from right. going from the good list to the naughty right. list, uh, and that's that's uh, as quick as it happens, too. Right. Huh. Well, in, in that passage, um, uh, there was a, well, let me read the passage, because um, he based it on John three fourteen through 18. And so this is that passage. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, what's all that serpent business, Pam? Well, in the during the Exodus, when the when Moses was leading the people to the Promised Land, the people of Israel, they got really weary and just had enough. You know, they were saying the food's horrible. Yeah, I, I think you know, I remember it would be better if we were back in Egypt, right? Yeah, and I mean, the passage says, this is not from Numbers 2, I mean, 21, 4 through 11. It says, from Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Adam. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For is, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> that was the manna from heaven. Right. <laughs> right. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and some passages or some versions say venomous serpents. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what that is is in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are types of Christ. And that was, it's like a picture or a foreshadowing of something to come. And actually, I have a definition here. It says, a type is a real exalted happening in history, which was divinely ordained by the omniscient God to be a prophetic picture of the good things which he purposed to bring to fruition in Christ. And then another one from the book says the bronze serpent was a type, that is, it was divinely it was a divinely intended picture of Christ. God told Moses to lift up the bronze serpent on the pole, specifically to foreshadow the death of the Messiah on the cross for the spiritual healing of all who would look to him in faith. So it's like a literal picture or representation they were looking to the the bronze serpent, and if they were bitten, even though they had the venom inside them, they could look upon that and the faith that they had that they would be healed because God had said that they would be if they looked upon that serpent, became a foreshadowing of our looking to Christ for our salvation and believing mm. that he alone saves us. If we were wondering whether or not this was actually a type or not, we can know with certainty that it was because Christ himself uses it mm-hmm. with a teacher of Israel. Right. In, in the passage in John 3, um, Nicodemus was 
described by John as being the teacher of Israel. So he wasn't just a minor teacher of Israel. He was a big name in the teachers of Israel. And so I think the point that Jesus was getting at here was that Nicodemus should have understood that. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he says, you're, a te- you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get this? And, and so, but what did, you know, in the people in the Old Testament who had been bitten by the serpents, they are dying, just like we have been infected with the disease of sin. We are dying from it. Because, you know, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And so ever since then, we've surely been dying. And so these people now have been bitten by the snake, and they're told, all you have to do is look up there at that snake and believe that by doing that, that by looking at that snake, nothing else, then you will have life, you will live. And think how simple that is mm-hmm. about, did they have to stand up, turn around three t- times and rub the top of their head? Right. No. Did they have to repent of snake bites? No. <laughs> did they have to walk the aisle down to the serpent pole? No. no. And so it's just that simple. And so when Christ gives that as the example, he gives it very specifically, I think to demonstrate the simplicity of it all. And then as he's describing what he's doing, you know, when he says, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but has, but has, but has everlasting life. Not will have it sometime later, but has everlasting life. I just wanted to cover one thing. I'm back from Inga real quick. Um, With faith, there was... A phrase that Bob used in the book, too, about coming to the conclusion that something is true as faith. He didn't necessarily use it in the terms of, I have believed or anything. He was more specific in saying, those who have believed actually have come to the conclusion that Christ is who he claims to be and that he does, in fact, guarantee everlasting life. And that really helped with my picture of what faith was, is that I have become convinced that Christ is exactly who he says he is. And I am convinced that he guarantees that eternal life. I am convinced of it. Just like I am convinced that Joe Biden is president of the United States right now. I I don't need to do anything above and beyond that other than it's a fact. It's truth. I understand that to be the truth. And so I I, kind of wanted to hit on that real quick because I think Mm -hmm. That, that's in the title, and we kind of miss it in be- the whole um, process of belief. It's being convinced that it's true. It's being convinced. What do you think Nicodemus would have said if at the start of their conversation, this is back to you, Pam, mm-hmm. what would you say if God asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? At the start of the conversation, I think he would have said, well, based on, he would have cited his years of devotion to studying the Torah, the law, the prophets, basically working really hard to earn his way to a prestigious position on the Sanhedrin. He had his reputation as a scholar and the recognition and respect that he received as one of the top rabbinical teachers of his time. You know, you don't, uh, I wrote, you don't become a top Jewish leader without devoting your life to it, especially back in Jesus' time. And while Nicodemus probably would have presented these credentials, he was already demonstrating that he knew there was something he just wasn't getting through his service and his knowledge and his prominence. There was something more that he was longing for. I think that he would have said, well, because of this and this and this, but he would have been kind of waiting with bated breath because he knew that wasn't really the answer, yeah. that there had to be something more. And that's absolutely the human response to it, isn't it? Yeah. We figure that um, if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, right. then that's, that's all we need, is that, you know, we just have to, we're, we're in a balancing act. And so I can do some bad things, but I need to counteract it with some good things. And yeah. then you're, you're kind of walking that line right up until you pass from this world into the next hoping that you got the balancing act right, if nothing more than just having one more good deed on that side than you had on the bad deed side. 
and that would make you acceptable to God. And it's exhausting. But it's, you know, why, why should God save anybody who, let's say, doesn't repent, doesn't follow up, doesn't right. um, change his life, even though they have believed? And the answer was because we're all sinners and he saved us. Right. You know, it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, it reminds me, too, of when Paul saying, me above. Yeah, I'm chief of sinners, right? right? And But, I mean, all these things that he'd done in his past that were, you know, great, like he persecuted Jews. and Right. Well, that's in Philippians 3. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. he realized that wasn't enough. Yeah. Hebrews yeah. of Hebrews, of the right. tribe of Benjamin. Right, right. As to zeal, persecuting the church. You exactly. Know, as to the law, uh, blameless. Right. Yeah, but I consider that all to be a pile of dung (laughs) in comparison to the riches of Christ, of gaining Christ. Well, should we go on to chapter three, lady? I was waiting with bated breath to see what Nicodemus's answer might have been after the interview with Jesus. Well, Carol, (laughs) Pam, what would Nicodemus say after he met with Jesus? I said that I think he would have clearly understood that there was what Jesus was saying. That he, because Jesus explained to him that he needed to be born again and talked about being born, born of the Spirit being different from being born of water, which being born of water is the physical birth. Being born of the Spirit is when you're born spiritually, and that begins when you believe, believe. in Christ right. and put your trust. Well, you believe in him. I'm adding things because that's what I've done all my life. I'm running ahead to the parable of the seeds. Right. You know? But just kind of going from what we see of Nicodemus here and in the other places he's mentioned in Scripture, I think probably he would have kind of needed some time to mull it over a little bit. But I think that, I mean, that's just my opinion. But the evidence that he did believe is there because we do see him standing up for Jesus. Later in Scripture, in John's Gospel, yes. And then, you know, being one of the two, um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus claimed Jesus' body for burial. And one thing I just want to add really quickly, I feel a little bit sorry for Nicodemus because of the way he's mentioned, like sneaking, coming at night. But, I mean, this was a man who had really high standing in the among the Jewish people. I mean, he was the teacher of Israel. For him to put his standing and his, not only that, I think there was probably some internal struggle. You know, like, I've believed this all my life. Can it really be so simple? And that's why I think maybe it didn't click right away. I don't know that. It may, Maybe it did. But I think, so many times a seed is planted and we don't know when it actually starts to germinate and take take growth. My sister, my baby sister, told me years after the fact that she'd come to Christ when I shared with my other my middle sister right after I'd become a Christian that all she needed to do was to believe in Christ. And I had made her sit in the corner and not ask any questions <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so you never know you never know when that's going to happen but or what's going to happen but you know i think that's really important to remember is that god is always in control he's working in the hearts to prepare that harvest too he suffers long and he's merciful and gracious right. as um pam was telling this story from numbers uh, and she read the phrase where the people asked Moses to pray to God to ask him to take away the snakes. In the beginning of the book of John, John says, Behold, the lamb uh, that taketh away the sin of the world. It's like those snakes. Oh, yeah. I, I do have a conjecture of what Nicodemus might have said after the conversation. God, I heard your son and believed your promise that you gave him so that I would have everlasting life through belief in him. Wow. There you go. Well, that, that makes me almost want to run to the end of the, the interview and say, 
Okay, if uh, God asked you why he should save you, what would you say? All these verses that we've been learning in our Bible study. Our instinct is, well, because I've done this, or I've done that, or I've been a good this, or I've been a good that. When the answer is, because your son guaranteed me eternal life if I believed in him, and I have. Therefore, you're going to save me because you keep your word. Well, chapter three, let's see, the name of chapter three was Faith on the Rock. And the scripture that was associated with chapter three in Bob's book, Bob Wilkins, not Bob Wren, was uh, Luke chapter eight, verses 11 through 13. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Carol, I believe you have chapter 3? I do, thank you. Is the belief referred to in Luke eight twelve, saving faith? I might want to back up a little bit. Why is it important for believers to study the doctrine of eternal security? Okay. None of us can be sure that our experience of faith will remain intact until we go to be with the Lord. Thus, it is vital that we know what the Bible declares about believers whose faith falters. It's not none of us can know where we're going to wind up. It's none of us can be sure that our experience of faith will remain intact, even if if our faith falters. Okay, just before you go on any further, quick uh, sampling here. Inga, has your faith ever faltered? Robin, has your faith ever faltered? Pam? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bob? Oh, yeah. Carol, has your faith ever faltered? My walk, maybe, but I was saved late in life. I was 34 when I was saved. And so I had been immersed in a lot of Bible study before I yielded. By that time, it was so... So what you would say was your faith had not faltered, but perhaps your abiding in him had. Yes. Okay. And abiding in him enough that it would change my behavior more quickly. And in a later chapter, we discuss why the... Abiding is not synonymous with faith. Abiding has something else to do, but it does not have to do with saving faith. Abiding is about discipleship and eternal rewards, whereas saving faith is saving faith. So, Carol, would you like me to ask questions or would you like to roll with this? Let me see if I can roll with it. Okay. The seed sown by the wayside represents those who hear the gospel but don't believe. It would have been saving faith for them if they had believed the gospel. The germination of the seeds in the parable illustrates regeneration. The seed trampled on and eaten by the birds never germinates. The other three do. Many assume that the belief referred to in verse 13 is not saving faith. The one that came up on the very shallow soil, rocky soil, and it withered in the sun and died. Um, Yet Jesus clearly indicates the people of verse 13 believed something for a time. Jesus said in his explanation of the parable that they believed. He did not qualify the belief by saying they only mentally believed. Instead, Jesus simply posited at the beginning of his explanation of the parable that belief results in being saved. In its description of how the devil comes to take away the word out of their hearts to try to prevent them from being saved, verse 12 clearly states that those who don't believe won't be saved. Those who do believe will be saved. So when Jesus said that the rocky soil people believed, we have no choice but to conclude that they were saved since, according to verse 12, all who believe are saved. 
Then it goes, how long does a person need to believe the gospel in order to be saved? The phrase in verse 12, so that they may not believe and be saved, sounds like an instantaneous transaction with no probationary time requirement between belief and salvation. This concurs with Jesus' promise in John 5.24 and 6.47 that he who believes has everlasting life. Eternal salvation occurs the moment a person believes the promise of the gospel. Subsequently, believers are held by the promise of God, not by their own faithfulness or by the endurance of their faith. According to Luke 8.12, if Satan can't stop someone from believing the gospel, he loses the battle for that soul. Now, those that sprang up, the three that sprang up, the difference between them is the amount of fruit that they bore. Not all believers will bear what Jesus calls fruit in verse 15. Our eternal salvation is not dependent on our faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. The moment we believe, we are saved forever. Our faith may fail, but God will never turn his back on his promise to us. If we are, this is from uh, 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. The verse right before this talks about what is at stake. That's our eternal rewards. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12. Enduring in our confession of faith in Christ until the end of our lives is the condition for ruling with Christ, not for maintaining our salvation, and for having the other rewards which only persevering saints will receive. Clearly, the main point of this parable is that every believer in Christ is called to be productive. We should give attention to the quality of the soil in which our lives are growing. That soil must be cultivated, fertilized, weeded, and watered. We do this by reading, studying, and meditating on the Bible, praying, having fellowship with other believers, and developing a spiritual mindset and worldview. And I'd like to add, as a mother, it's important that mothers and fathers nurture that soil in their children's hearts so that when they hear the word, it's softened, they've heard these things before, they're not in a total spiritual vacuum, and they'll be more receptive to that seed germinating and bearing fruit. Yeah. Now, I remember growing up and hearing countless sermons on this parable before, mm-hmm. and I know that I always came away from it um, thinking that the seed that the birds got the seed on the rocky um, soil and the seed with the um, weeds growing up around it were all people who died and went to hell. Right. And that the only ones that were saved were the ones that, and they bared, you know, and they bore a crop, you know, mm-hmm. you know abundant crop. Um, how different, how different I think about this now when you see about the only unbelief was the one where the seed was snatched away before they could believe. And that every other instant was a case of believers, and that this parable is actually about eternal rewards and our productivity as believers, how we're going to walk, how we're going to abide, how we're going to be a disciple of Christ, and how different that is when you think about this. That's that's radical. That's absolutely radical thinking for this, wouldn't you say? It's about productivity, Mm -hmm. and it's about believers and it's not necessarily about, you know, un- unbelievers, other than the fact that it's just snatched away. Carol? About the fruit-bearing, I'm always reminded of uh, hearing Earl Rodmacher at the Coast Bible Conference, and he spoke about having a, a fruit tree in his yard, and it never bore fruit. They lived there for eight years, and when they started to move, 
That year, (laughs) the tree bore fruit. He said, it was always a fruit tree. Whether it bore fruit or not, it was always a fruit tree. I can tell you a story, too. In the last house that we lived in, I had a lemon tree that was across my yard. And I would sit in my, the back of my yard where I could look at it, over at that lemon tree. And it had not borne fruit in, in years. And so I'm sitting out there looking at that lemon tree one day. And I tell that lemon tree from all the way across the yard, you don't have some fruit for me this year. I'm cutting you down. <laughs> it had fruit for me that year. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, Deanne's not here for chapter four. Or would you anything else to say on chapter three? I mean, there. I mean, we could get into what us being fruit inspectors of one another, and I mm-hmm. don't think that we're called to be that. Um, that's for the Lord at His judgment seat. Yeah. Oh, yes. We're not supposed to take each other's inventory. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so we could just skip chapter four if you want, um, and go right to chapter five. In this one, it was, uh, chapter four was, will the real believer stand up? Oh, I'll read that passage. It was John 12, 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers believed in him. And so key there is, nevertheless, many, even of the rulers believed in him. So John's telling us that these were believers. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, the fact that they were not confessing, some is is used as a, say, well, you know, for those, there's a passage where um, if you believe in your heart, the Lord is Christ Jesus, and you confess him with your mouth, then you will be saved. There is another verse in Scripture that says that. And so I think it's in James, perhaps or Romans or and Romans ten. I th- Romans ten. I think it is okay. But we have here clearly that these were believers. They had believed in him. So if all true believers confess Christ, these people from whom the apostle John calls believers couldn't be genuine. This is a sticky problem, right? Were these rulers true believers or not? And the obvious conclusion is that. It is possible to believe in Christ and yet not confess him. In fact, to suggest any other option is to distort the plain sense of these words. Sadly, these believing rulers were more concerned with their social standing than with God's praise. Some today have no room in their theology for Christians like this. John, however, did. That was a chapter four in a thumbnail sketch there. Will the real believers please stand up? I think they missed an opportunity for rewards, but we have their testimony in how Nicodemus made an attempt to stand up for Jesus, Correct, and they're claiming that body in the face of Pilate. They weren't afraid of him. And, you know, Jesus did, was crucified, was buried, did rise again, did ascend into heaven. Peter did preach at Pentecost, and... That day, 3,000 people believed. Who's to say that some of the people right here weren't in that number that believed? or Well, that you know, they had already believed, so that we're not, we're not even talking about them. But then a the persecution came. Just because maybe they weren't confessing at that time does not mean they never confessed either. And so we got to remember that salvation is by grace through faith, and that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It didn't say salvation is by grace through faith and confession, salvation is by grace through faith, and that is a gift of God. Well, even Peter denied Christ. But yes. And then he's the rock upon which the church is built. Thank you, Pam. Rocking it. You're rocking it. <laughs> All right, chapter five, free at last. Um, and the passage for chapter five is John 8, 30 and 32. And this is it. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Carol. Well, I have that John 8.30 is about salvation. where He says, As he spoke these words, many believed in him. And that the next verse is about discipleship. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Number one, these were true believers because Jesus goes on to invite them to a life of discipleship. We also know that they were true believers because of Jesus' promises in such passages as John 5.24 and 6.47. If inspired scripture tells us that someone has exercised saving faith, we are bound to agree with that assessment. Saving faith is not some special kind of faith. What makes saving faith saving is its object, not the faith itself. The object of saving faith is Jesus Christ as the guarantor of eternal life to everyone who just believes in him. You want to go ahead and read verse 45 or that area around verse 45? Go ahead. I, I'm looking for it right now. I don't <laughs> see it. But uh, this is the, the passage where he um, calls them, you vipers. Oh, oh, oh you're yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought Satan that was, is your father. Right. He says, uh, you are of your father, the devil, talking to some people in this crowd as well. So it's the same crowd, but it's he turns and it's a, a different subset of that crowd. The large group of hearers in 32, 30 through 32 and 45 through 46 is comprised of two different sets of people who were, in fact, polar opposites. Jesus clearly tells some of those gathered that they do not believe in him. In the midst of a sea of people who rejected Jesus was a small pool of people who came to believe in him. The difference between a believer and a disciple, and how does a person abide in Christ's word? Believing in Christ for eternal life occurs at a point in time and results in instantaneous and irreversible spiritual life. Being a disciple is an ongoing experience, as opposed to instantaneous. Being a disciple is ongoing and is conditioned on abiding in Jesus' word, studying it, meditating on it, and applying it. It is vitally important to realize that there is a difference between eternal salvation and discipleship. One who thinks he must follow Christ to be saved, to stay saved, or even to prove he is saved, does not believe the biblical gospel. Jesus promises eternal life to all who merely believe in him. And what is the relationship between discipleship and freedom from sin? That's what he's talking about, that the truth will set you free. That's free from sin. These people were several times a year going to the temple to make the sacrifices to atone for their sin. He's telling these people how they can be not only delivered from sin, he's telling them how they can be free from this body of sin by abiding. Now, some may posit this logical equation, major premise. All true believers are free from sin. Minor premise. The people in question are not yet free from sin. Conclusion. The people in question are not yet true believers. The major premise is wrong according to Romans seven nineteen through 24, where Paul says, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? According to John 8, 31, more than belief in Jesus is required to know the truth and be set free from sin. An experiential knowledge of the truth of God's word does not happen at the moment of regeneration. An experience of deliverance from bondage may not occur overnight. Habits that took years or decades to develop don't often disappear with one session of Bible study and prayer. It takes time before a new believer is so grounded in God's word that he becomes 
spiritually minded and experiences freedom from bondage to sin. While it is true that all believers are positionally free from bondage to sin, they experience that freedom only if they are abiding in Christ's teachings. He quoted Luther in that as well. He says, you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you don't have to let them nest in your hair. Right. And describing discipleship and how it will set you free from sin. Eventually, you shall know the truth and it will set you free. It's um, definitely that abiding in his word and abiding in him and um, being a disciple, walking as a disciple. Paul says of that, you know, walk worthy of your calling. He also says in uh, Ephesians 2, walk in the good works that God has created you to walk in. And so there's this, this idea of, okay, at the cross, Christ made us savable. And at our belief in the fact, coming to the conclusion, being convinced that Christ, in fact, has made us savable and he guarantees us eternal life, all right, what do we do next? And that's what we do next, is um, we walk, we abide, we grow. And, and that, in fact, is yet another part of salvation. There's the justification aspect of it that happened at the cross and, and, and at belief. We are justified in, in God's sight at the instant that we believe that Christ is the Son of God and that he has guaranteed us eternal life. But then there is a lifetime left here on earth for however long we have, be it short or be it long, where we are walking and the things that God has prepared for us to walk in as believers. And as we walk and we grow spiritually, we grow in the salvation of um, that, that, that walk, and that's what we call sanctification. And then ultimately, as we're freeing ourselves from the bondage of sin, then ultimately at glorification we'll be freed from the absolute even presence of sin. And so, you know, the, the picture is, it's salvation in three parts. There's freedom from the penalty of sin. There's freedom from... Power of, of sin. Power of sin. And then there's freedom from... Presence of presence sin. Presence of sin. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> the three Ps. Okay, chapter six. Chapter six is assurance and focus. And I know as a former Baptist, I had problems with assurance. Anybody here have a problem at one point in your life or not about whether knowing for sure that you were saved or not? Yeah. Robin? Yeah? Everybody's shaking their heads up and down. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are even little times when people would come and I didn't have, I wasn't equipped to understand how to counteract or didn't wasn't equipped with verses to lean on to say oh yes i have everlasting life i wasn't equipped and so legalistic people could maybe throw me for a loop and i like a lamb "Ah." (laughs) but god has been so good to lead me beside the still waters of the eternal security and the assurance This chapter started out by comparing different views of salvation. One is Arminianism, and uh, basically it's tomorrow I might lose it by falling into major, major sin. They consider claims of eternal security to be, get this, arrogant boasting. They view it as inconceivable that anyone whose works are not good enough to satisfy God could go to heaven. Calvinism's mantra is, tomorrow I might discover I never had it. If you fall into major sin, you may prove you were never saved to begin with. Yeah. You must persevere in good works to go to heaven. There are saved and unsaved believers. Now that's, that's a conundrum, an unsaved believer. Saved believers are those who believe in Christ and hence are eternally secure. Unsaved believers, according to Calvinism, 
are those who believe in Christ intellectually, but in reality have never believed really from the heart. They're the person who falls away, never possess salvation in the first place. Neither view allows you to rest in the certain knowledge that you are a child of God. Bob Wilkin compared this to daisy theology as a Instead of tulip theology, mm-hmm. it could be called daisy theology. There's a third view of assurance that rests solely on the wonderful objective promises in God's Word that whoever believes in Christ has everlasting life that can never be lost. Then there was the question, name pe- three people in the Bible who knew for sure they were eternally secure. And if some people in Scripture were absolutely sure that they were eternally secure, wouldn't God want everyone to have that certainty? Well, I started with the obvious, John, because it's all about belief. And if he was able to write about it, surely he wrote from experience that it was true. Paul, in Romans 6.23, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Timothy, 1 Timothy one twelve, Second 2 Timothy 2, 13 through 17, uh, when he said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Job, in the Old Testament, I know that my Redeemer liveth and on the earth shall stand at the latter day. And though worms consume this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Amen. Joseph, he did something in Exodus. Uh, He wanted to have his bones carried back to the promised land. And Abel and Abraham in the Hebrews uh, Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, and David in 2 Samuel and in Psalm, 68. God shows no partiality. He wants all men to have the kind of assurance all the biblical giants of the faith had. Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Can a person who is out of fellowship with God be sure he is eternally secure? How could a person who was sure he was eternally secure lose that certainty? Well, while eternal life can't be lost, though, assurance can be. A person could start looking at counterfeit gospels, such as the two-step approach to evangelism, which says, one, believe the gospel, and two, gain assurance. Looking at their, another way is to look at their own works or faithfulness for assurance rather than to the objective promises in God's word. However, this person can be sure just by relying on the promises in passages such as 1 John 5, 9 through 13 and Romans 4, 45. God justifies the ungodly. Jesus' promise to the believer is everlasting life, not freedom from problems in this life. That's the main thing we need to get off this planet is everlasting life. All the other stuff, health, wealth, good marriage, whatever, fill in the blank, those are extraneous to our main need. And that's everlasting life, the kind of life that's God's life. We're all going to live eternally because that's how he created man. Man has an eternal, maybe you can expound on that, Bob, but our eternal destiny is, do we want the God kind of life or do we want to remain children of of our father, Satan? If we take our eyes off his promise and try to make it other than what it is, we lose assurance of everlasting life. And what are the benefits for knowing for sure that you are eternally secure? 
I think it actually pleases God that we trust him to keep his promises. That's why God called Abraham his friend. When they are keenly aware of their secure relationship with God, they experience a profound gratitude and love and are spurred by a desire to obey the Lord. Yeah, I would. Uh, I was thinking that yeah, Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. I wrote, I highlighted one, one thing at the end of it, because we always like to compare ourselves to other people, right, and thinking about how we're doing as far as this salvation thing is and how we're doing in pleasing God and the reason why he should save us, right? And so he wrote in here, how is it that a sinful person, without turning from his sinful ways, can die and yet still go to heaven? And doesn't such, and the question begs, well, doesn't such a one deserve to go to hell? Well, yes. Yes, he does, he says. But based on our own merit, so do we all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so whenever you start looking at other people and think, yeah, well, I'm not that. Well, yeah, we all deserve hell. We all deserve it. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're guaranteed not to have it because we have believed in our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life and nothing else. We didn't bring anything to the table. Okay, as we wrap this up, a few questions about Bob Wilkins' book. Do you feel that um, Bob accurately represented the scriptures? Go around the table. Inga? Yes, I do. Robin? Yes, I do. Uh, Carol? Um, yes, I do. I felt like he was very objective okay. with the scriptures. Pam? I do. and. It was challenging in a good way for me because a lot of the things that he talked about, especially from, you know, being from a Calvinistic background, those are things I've struggled with. Yeah. I had a suitcase full of that stuff, right. you know, and it's been been years, years unpacking that suitcase mm-hmm. of stuff. It really has been. I don't recall if it was in the first six chapters that he actually mentioned this or not, if it was later in the book, but he talks about entering through the narrow gate. And he talked about the narrow gate and how we always have thought of that as being just only a few people will get saved. But what he, he, he represented it as is the narrow gate is actually that, that narrow belief that there's nothing we actually bring mm. to the table, that the narrow gate is belief in Christ for eternal life. And what could be more narrowing than that? That that's the narrow gate, you know. And and so you know, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Well, everything that we bring with it, the narrow gate is Christ Himself, and that He assures us of eternal life. And I thought that was a great representation of it. Is there anything you thought He misrepresented? Can't think of a thing. Mm. Okay, just in closing on this part of it. Uh, I've been listening to um, Grace, Evan- Grace Evangelical Society's podcasting, and Wayne Gruden has written a book about the free grace movement. It, it's what, this is what this is called, is free grace, as if um, somehow by calling it free grace, it makes it somehow cheap, um, which nothing could be further from the truth. But so Wayne actually went through and wrote wrote a book about what's wrong with free grace and in the belief that Christ is um, sufficient and the guarantor of eternal life and that uh, belief is all that's needed. And so um, Bob actually wrote a book and chapter by chapter refuted each of uh, Wayne's uh, chapters. So it's out there. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, it's on his website if you want to read that. Interesting enough, uh, I can't remember. I know Wayne Gruden spoke at one of the Coast Bible Conference um, meetings that we had, and I can't remember if Bob Wilkins was actually the other speaker at the time, or it might have been Chris Cohn or Charlie Bing. I can't remember when which he, one. At the Bible Conference? Yes, yes. I know he did speak. He did At speak. least one time. Yeah, I yes. remember hearing him Very speak. tall. Well, I remember Bob Wilkin, but I'm talking about Wayne Gruden. Oh, I think he did. No, no, he did. I remember. Uh, I remember Wayne. So anyway, 
yeah, that that book's out there. It might be something to um, read if you get a chance at it. Before we close tonight, I understand that you ladies are going to do another um, study coming up starting in January? Mid-January, yes. Okay. We want to study K. Arthur's uh, publication, Lord, Teach Me to Study the Bible in 28 Days. That's 28 days is four weeks. Um, this was a six-week course, and I'm just amazed at how much we were able to cover in six weeks. And we met for an hour and a half each week, and I'm amazed the depth that we were able. We studied a lot of other things that came up in the course. Robin was noticing something, a difference between uh, everlasting and eternal. So we did a word study on that, and that was very interesting. But we are looking forward to learning to study our Bibles inductively with this next study. And we invite from anybody. What do you mean by inductive? Looking in the Word and seeing what's in there, doing word studies, uh, cross-referencing, keywords. Let's see, not not bringing into it our preconceived ideas to make it fit our preconceived ideas, but to just observe through observation, basically, what's in there and come to conclusions from the observations that we make. So it sort of sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I suspect that I am, that you're speaking of a literal, grammatical, historical approach to interpreting the Bible. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Well, I can roll with that then. I think that'll be a good study. Anything anybody would like to add in closing before we close tonight? Would you do this again? What, the podcast? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to hold you to that. No, would you uh, do another study with the ladies here? Sure. Would you recommend it? Okay. All right. Well, then, with that said, no one would like to close us in prayer. I'll do that. Okay. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, I thank you for these ladies. I thank you for their devotion and commitment to the study of your word, to wanting to know for sure what you've said about things so important, such as salvation, that they know exactly what it is, that is belief in your Son who guarantees eternal life to them, and that they can have assurance in that and know without a doubt that they have eternal life. I pray for the study that they'll do, that they'll continue to grow, and continue to lead in their lives, in this fellowship, in the body of Christ here, and with all the lives that they come in contact with. And I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and found it thought-provoking. The Upper Room is a Bible Fellowship Church production. The opinions discussed by our guests are just opinions and random thoughts at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the doctrine or stated beliefs of Bible Fellowship Church.